You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here at Unsiloed. And my guest today is Jay Barney. Jay's a professor of strategy and business at the University of Utah, and he's previously been at Ohio State. He's been at UCLA, Texas A&M. And in addition to his seminal research on strategy, particularly in the area of resource-based strategy, he's written a book uh, called What I Didn't Learn in Business School. It's a novel about a management consultant on his first week at work, I think, first project. And so for those of you who are trying to figure out what that's like, you should check it out if you want to understand business strategy, because it makes a lot of reference to the literature and the stuff that you learn in business school and why it needs to be augmented and supplemented. I definitely recommend it. So welcome, Jay. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun to write the novel. A lot more fun to write the novel than to write the textbook, I have to admit. Maybe we'll start with that because there are not that many books that I would think of as novels slash textbooks. There's The Goal. I'm sure you've read that. And that was 20, 30 years ago. And then The Phoenix Project is another one. Who thought you could write an exciting novel about DevOps? But they did it. What inspired you to write that kind of book? I wanted to write something for a general audience, not an academic book or a book primarily designed for students. And we met with several publishers and they said, what you need to do is you need to have a single concept that you organize the entire book around. The problem with that is in my own work consulting with companies, the value added is not in your ability to have a single concept that works in all settings, because there is no such thing. Rather, to use the skills that I thought I brought to the table was a portfolio or a toolbox of theoretical perspectives, including some of my own work, but also others' work as well. And so I didn't want to write a book that just had one tool. I wanted to really talk about the problem of of how to integrate across multiple tools in the real world. So my co-author and I, she'd been a consultant at a major consulting firm. I had done a fair amount of consulting on my own. So we drew on our experience, plus our academic backgrounds, to write a book that is both an introduction to the content of strategy, but also put in a real organizational context where people have mixed motives and there's a backstory that you don't understand. I characterize it as a coming-of-age story where our hero is a very smart, recent MBA graduate who thought that if he learned how to crack cases in the MBA program, that would make him a good organizational consultant. He had a lot to learn. What I liked about the book is that it, the narrative arc actually follows the kind of voyage of intellectual discovery that all of us who have been studying strategy have yes. been going through, I think, since the 80s, really. He starts off by doing a five forces analysis, and then gradually he starts thinking about core competencies. And then, and then he's like, organizational structure matters. Oh, and then there's culture and incentives. <laughs> and so when you do a, a strategy class for MBAs, you walk through those different frameworks and, and, and perspectives. And then at the end of the day, you realize that the, the truth of the situation really is, is a kind of an amalgamation of these different frameworks and, and perspectives, none of which is complete in and of themselves. By definition, they can't be, because if they were, then they would be reality and they wouldn't be good theory. You know, I took my 
first strategy class in 1991. And it was actually just recently added to the MBA curriculum. And they didn't even call it strategy. I think they called it business policy. And that was right at the time when your key article came out, right? And there wasn't like SSRN or anything back in those days. So it was like, you know, when an article came out, it was kind of a big deal. And so I wonder Mm -hmm. if you could take us back in time a little bit and tell us, what were you thinking? How did you come up with the the realization that this resource-based view of the firm was was so important? You can maybe tell us a little bit about what that is and why it's important and, and why it was such a big deal at the time. The story actually begins in the early 80s. I had joined UCLA and I was a brand new assistant professor. I didn't know anything. And I, and I went to a colleague of mine who was in the finance department, a guy named Tom Copeland. Tom has since uh, left academia and spent a lot of time on the consulting world. And I asked Tom as a finance professor, he said, I'm a new organizations guy. Do you think I should read? And he said, yeah, you should read this paper by Jensen and Mecklen in Journal of Financial yeah. Economics. Yeah. So I got that article. I went to the library, I got the article, and I read it quickly, and I went back to his office and said, this is what the paper's about, and he said, no, you don't understand it. So I figured I had one more chance, so I then spent the next six weeks reading that article, and afterwards, I actually think I understood the article at least as well as the authors. It took six weeks because each line implied a literature I didn't know anything about, so I'd read a sentence, especially in the first third of the paper, and then I'd read ten other papers to, to understand that sentence, and then... The next sentence would create the same thing, and it took a long time. So I went back to Tom's office, and I said, this is what the article is about. He said, you're exactly right. So the article, to me, the article is mostly about agency theory, but that's not actually what was most critical for me. What was most critical for me was the concept of an efficient capital market. And the reason that's important is that an efficient capital market says that all publicly available information about a firm's value of a firm's assets will be reflected in the price of those assets. There's a debate about whether that's true or not always, but as a theoretical position, it's very interesting. And so I thought about those, that a lot. And at the same time, I, I, for the first time, I started teaching this strategy course, and so I thought I'd better read Michael Porter's book, Competitive Strategy, and I really did not like it. But I didn't know why I didn't like it. And so I, I went on this sort of personal journey to understand why I had such a visceral reaction. It turns out that the reason is that Having gone through Jensen and Meckling and sort of understood efficiency, equilibrium arguments, I had become a Chicago school economist. And Porter, while he was applying economics to strategy questions, was applying structure, conduct, and performance, non-Chicago school. Mm-hmm. Those two don't work very well together. And so I had become a Chicago economist unknowingly and thus had this very negative reaction. So I wrote two papers. To help me understand that this reaction, the first one was initially titled Why Michael Porter is Wrong. Uh, I changed the title. And it was written in 1984, published in 1986 in Management Science, and it's called Strategic Factor Markets. And basically what it does is it makes the argument that the resources that a firm acquires in factor markets, these, these factors of production, that their price has an impact on your ability to generate profits in product markets. Mm-hmm. So if you pay the full value of the resources necessary to implement a strategy in the factor market, then even if you look, if it looks like you've created competitive imperfections in the product market, they will not be a source of profits because the profits that were generated in the product market would have been anticipated mm-hmm. in the factor market. And then it says, but not all factor markets are perfectly competitive. And one of the reasons they're not perfectly competitive is that firms approach those markets with heterogeneous capabilities. Mm-hmm that makes some of those resources more valuable to them than to others. That's the basis of resource-based theory. 
So that was in 1984, published in 86. The other paper I wrote in 84 became the published paper that I published in 1991. And, and I always cited it as a way of advertising the theory that was in the management science paper. But the result was it actually has become the more cited paper. It's pretty accessible, pretty easy to read. But the basic story is it's not about industry always. It can be in some circumstances. Firms are operating in oligopolies. You probably need to understand positioning theory and SCP logic as a supply strategy. For those of us that are operating in more competitive environments, Flory says what you need to do is you need to look inside and identify resources and capabilities you already control, that you have had because of history, because of relationships you've developed with the socially complex, and you have to find opportunities to gain access to new resources that are more valuable to you than they are to anyone else because you have these special capabilities. When you do that, you can avoid overpaying and you can take advantage when the price of the market doesn't fully reflect the value of those resources. That's essentially a resource-based view. It's not a replacement for positioning. I certainly can, positioning is useful in some settings, but as long as we're not in oligopolistic situations with high barriers to entry, the world that, that works best in the positioning world than resource-based logic. Yeah, I always think of Jensen and Meckling as a primarily a finance article, but it's really about organizational design. It's much sure. law and economics. But all my friends in, in finance who are big believers in efficient markets and so forth, they oftentimes struggle with this idea. If there are no positive NPV projects in the financial markets, that, then how can you in the same course just start talking about positive and negative NPV projects in the project market? I mean, if, if yeah. you know, there, there shouldn't be any, right? There shouldn't be any, every project should be zero NPV in the same way that every security is zero NPV if you do the analysis. And, and that's one of those areas where in finance, you just say, well, look, this is just the way it is. So I always tell my finance students, hey, you know, the best finance class that you can ever take is strategy, right? <laughs> because, I mean, okay, 20 years ago, I used to say the best finance course you could take was the golf class because that was going to be more useful than, than well, DCF. <laughs> but but now I say, hey, you got to take a strategy class. First of all, I, I don't want to give any confusion. I have enormous respect for my finance colleagues and a lot of the work they do is really marvelous. And as I said earlier, for myself, building on finance theory has been a really important story to tell for my own development work. But here's the secret. Some firms do better than other firms is because they're just better at addressing customer needs. And you know what? Sometimes it's hard to tell why they're better at addressing customer needs. Well, that's resource-based theory at its core. Another way of saying this is that if you can measure and report and characterize the way an asset creates value with precision, then it won't be a source of economic profits because it'll be perfectly priced in these markets. So yeah, the finance stuff has been important, but it's been important for me to also understand its limitations. This is flowing back into finance. If the value of a project is a function of who owns it, or the value of an opportunity is a function of who's attempting to exploit it, then at some point, the value of a financial asset is also a function of, of who owns it. Because in right. financial markets, there are control premiums that vary depending on who's essentially influencing the folks. And I think a great example in your, in your novel where the company is under threat from the private equity 
folks. And what they bring to the table is the ability to presumably align the management and, and identify which managers or which incentive schemes or organizational structures are most likely to identify and exploit the opportunities that this company's faced. So it's interesting that you picked up on that. I recently published another paper in Strategic Management Journal that takes that to the next logical step, and that is the following. The title of the paper is something like, Why Resource-Based Theory's Model of Profit Appropriation Must Include a Stakeholder Perspective. Mm -hmm. I spent 20 years arguing against stakeholders, but what I did is uh, I started bumping into companies, clients, who are taking stakeholder theory very seriously. And I realized that traditional shareholder primacy is the deal that it offers from stakeholders. What we want you to do, I'm talking to employees and suppliers and and customers often. What we want you to do, we want you to work really hard. We want you to make all sorts of specific investments in our company. We want your dedication. We want your loyalty. We want your creativity. And then we're going to take all those resources and capabilities, combine with them others, and we're going to generate economic profits that we're going to give to the shareholders. Right. Why would any rational stakeholder agree to that deal? It's crazy. And so I actually go through in this paper, 2018 SMJ paper, using both transaction cost economics and incoming contract theory, show that if all profits are given to residual claimants, then firms will never be able to attract the kinds of specific investments they need from other stakeholders to generate those profits. Now, I realize that stakeholder issues still are difficult. I'm not pretending I've solved all the issues with stakeholder theory, but the notion that all a firm has to do is maximize returns. If you maximize returns to your shareholders, the way to do that is, in fact, by also including other stakeholders, those that provide resources that have the potential for generating economic profits, yeah. provide those resources. Those people then provide resources to the firm and have the potential for generating those profits. And I think that view of shareholder primacy was really built on this assumption that you could construct fully contingent contracts in all these other domains and that labor law was sufficiently well-defined and that debtor-creditor law was sufficiently well-defined and supplier law and customer law was so well-defined that you could draft these perfect contracts. But we all know that perfect contracts are not possible in any domain, really, right? Suppose you could write a perfect contract, then it would be perfectly priced to these competitive markets. And there would be no profits. That is, if I knew for sure that my asset was worth X dollars to you, I would insist on X dollars. So, yeah, it is in competitive imperfections of various kinds where the possibility of economic profit can be generated. Really, the only thing resource-based theory does, as opposed to the positioning perspective, is to suggest that those competitive imperfections have much more to do with heterogeneous capabilities, oligopoly, and barriers to entry. And from a welfare economics perspective, I think you would argue that firms spend probably, they invest too much in, you know, capabilities that are defensible and not enough in those that are appropriable. So first of all, resource-based theory is actually usually consistent with social welfare in the sense that firms are heterogeneous in their capabilities, their ability to sell products that exploit those capabilities and markets depend on demand for those products. So if both buyer and seller voluntarily agree to buy this product that's somehow special, then that price, the profits it generated, is actually consistent with both the interests of those parties, and thus consistent with social welfare. But the notion that firms spend too much money on developing resources and capabilities that are costly to imitate as opposed to more generic ones, I don't think that follows necessarily. For example, 
if I try to implement a public policy that says firms should invest most of their efforts on developing generic capabilities, then what kind of products and services are we going to get out of that world? Well, we're going to get generic products and services. Now, if we lived in the Soviet Union, where everyone's disposed to have the same exact preferences, then that's not a problem at all. But in real life, there's a great deal of heterogeneity and preferences on the consumer side. And so actually, if some consumers are willing to pay extra money to get access to products that are developed by firms that have specialized skills. Some people think about the problem of investing in resources as a two-part problem. As part one is invest in the resource, and part two is invest in barriers to invitation. Mm-hmm. More likely, it is that the act of investing in a resource or capability is itself the source of the very invitation because the act of investing in capabilities happens over time in socially complex cultures and settings that are very costly to imitate by their nature. So there isn't a resource investment and then a barrier that you have to then invest in separately. In fact, they are often invested in simultaneously. I'll give you the extreme example of this. Firms will invest in technology and they will patent the technology. And they'll say, see, I invested the resources, the technology, and then I patent to protect it. And I ask them, how long will it take before your patent is imitated? Imitation happens quickly. But what is difficult to imitate is not the technology protected by a patent, but the innovativeness that enables you to develop the technology. The innovativeness is the capability that is socially complex and path-dependent, and thus more likely to be a source of sustained competitive advantage. But it does, because these investors look forward and reason back, I mean, they're thinking sure. very carefully about which of these investments are protectable. Certainly the, the venture capitalists, I don't think you get two slides in to your, to your pitch deck before you're talking about the, the moats <laughs> that you're going to put around it. And while it may be intellectual property or it could be other kinds of switching costs or anything that's going to create lock-in. Those are all reasonable things to do and certainly have a huge impact on the value of the investment. But you're going to lose the proprietary nature of this technology may take a while, may take two years, three years, but it's going to be gone. The thing that you're not going to lose, what's harder to imitate, is vividness, creativity, an ability to work more effectively as a team. This stuff is hard to buy and sell. Even if you bought the entire firm, you change the context, and that can actually destroy the thing that you end up buying. So, uh, yeah, so those are the things that I think are more likely to be sources of costly imitation. And so the causal ambiguity in the kind of complexity. To what extent is that endogenous? When I look at countries where you don't have a great deal of, of legal protection against appropriation, where the, right. where the government can come in and nationalize or your suppliers can take away your contract manufacturer, you see a completely different industrial organization of, of the society where you have, you know, Karetsu's or you have large family-owned firms. And so there's way more opacity inside those organizations, right? That's a fair observation. And so the structure of ownership can have an impact on that inevitability question. The thing that's interesting is that even in settings where there are not these patent and technology safeguards, IP is not well established, those kinds of things, some firms make more money than other firms. Mm-hmm. You can do it in monopoly, but you can also do it by being really good at meeting customer needs. And by the way, I do think that, for example, in the, the Keiretsu in Japan, the groups in Korea, the largest family businesses in India, a lot of those are to try to keep the secret sauce within the boundaries of the family or within the boundaries of the relationships. Absolutely true. 
back in the 90s thinking about what made for a resource or capability. Those things were very different in, in many ways than, than today. I think now we talk about networks, we talk about ecosystems, we talk about data. Firms now are, are relying on different kinds of, of heterogeneity to survive. The underlying theory remains the same. It's application changes. Yeah. It's clear that firms don't have to own these assets in order to get joined. You, just, you gave examples of where ownership could be helpful, but it's not a requirement. The whole task is to get these independent entities to make specific investments that can be co-specialized within a single firm to be a source of economic profit. A lot of this is a deeply problematic, though, because you think about it, employees provide some of the most critical resources that are necessary to generate uh, competitive advantage and economic profit. And so, extending that logic, you don't need to own your suppliers for those suppliers to make specific investments in you. If you can convince them that they're going to be willing to share some of the profits that those specific investments generate back with them. They're interested in working with you to get access to the profits, but you also have to be able to share those profits. If you rip them off, they, they won't join again and you have a very short entity. Right. Well, where I sit here in, in the Bay Area, I mean, the, the average life expectancy of an, of an employee is 14 months, they say. And it's just the fact that so companies are young and they're growing very rapidly. So it's not really the life expectancy of a new hire. It's probably, that's probably considerably longer. But, you know, these companies are, well, they're forced to standardize some things. They're forced to figure out very quickly how to get the most out of the employees very quickly. Okay, there's two points. So the first point is, we have, for some reason, I don't fully understand, for some historical reason, many firms have gone away from trying to guarantee employment for employees to instead of guaranteeing employability, mm-hmm. yeah. which means what we do is we'll give you experiences that enhance your general mm-hmm. capital that will make you valuable when you go somewhere else. Think about that for just yeah. a second. We're going to make you value so you can go yeah, yeah. somewhere else. You can't extract economic profits from that general human capital. However, what you can do is some firms may be more skilled attracting, attracting employees, building teams, and creating value with those teams quickly in anticipation of the fact they'll be always turning over. And so long-term employment is not the only way that you can generate value with human capital. If you can get individuals to, to come to your firm, make specific mm-hmm. investments with others in a co-specialized way that can generate profits, and in your book, you actually, I don't want to be a spoiler alert here, right. but you know, one of the characters who, who is a management consultant winds up taking on an executive position with the client, which is not uncommon. Right. And, not uncommon. And of course, our novice in, in the novels is shocked that this is seen as something to celebrate rather than, than something to be uh, concerned about because this person has, they've invested a lot in this consultant and then boom, she's gone. Smart consulting firms are not concerned about losing consultants to clients. Those just become the next generation of clients for the firm. So uh, they, they have to build that relationship. The relationship continues, even though the position as employee no longer exists. It's an interesting problem. I think one of the things that you allude to in a lot of your work is routines, like the unit of analysis, and they kind of replicate if they're effective and so forth. So how does your thinking kind of line up with that whole body of research, which is related? I'm a big fan of Nelson Winter and evolutionary economics generally, and some of the evolutionary theories applied to firms. Evolutionary theories have some inherent limitations from a practical point of view. They're non-teleological, so you can't use them to make predictions. You can describe what could happen, but you can't 
of all the possible outcomes, you can't say this is the one that will, is most likely. And so they have some of those limitations. But the notion of a routine and a capability are very closely linked. In some ways, evolutionary theory is about non-purpose-driven, non-motivated changes in capabilities over time. Whereas resource-based theory is much more about, okay, what do we have? How can we modify it? How can we use that to get access to new capabilities, human capital, other kinds of capital, that where we can create more value than anyone else and therefore generate economic profits? I do think that the kind of the boundary of the firm story is, is important as well, where if you have a good idea, you have a good routine, you have a good way of doing things, you have a capability, you want to scale it, you want to get the most out of it. You know, sure. the, the metaphor I use when well, I'm trying to explain like super simple resource sure. ideas, if you've got some crude oil and you've got exclusive access to crude oil, right? You don't want to be throwing away half of the crude oil and you want to make your jet fuel. Sure. And so all the kind of adjacencies that a firm goes into are sure. often ways of leveraging those capabilities in the same way you'd want to leverage excess production capacity or warehouse capacity sure. or whatever. First of all, clearly in terms of diversification, diversity of operations and adjacencies, Resource-based theory says if you're in a current business and have a competitive advantage that business based on capabilities that you control, an adjacency is defined as a related business where you can take advantage of at least some of those resources and capabilities in a related business. What it tells you is there's some things that are more likely to be sources of competitive advantage across diversified operations. So, for example, years ago, I used to teach this case, and this company was trying to justify wanting to do a particular acquisition, and it says... There are two clear synergies in this between us and this target. Okay, cool. It's a diversification move. The first one is we have excess warehouse capacity. Mm-hmm. They need warehouses. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm thinking, I'm not sure, but I'm thinking that excess warehouse capacity is not valuable. Well, it could be valuable. It's not rare cost to imitate. It could be in some settings, but it would be unusual. The second synergy was they need money and we have money. On that basis, they should acquire me because I need money. Now, on the other hand, if you tell me that you have an incredible capability for bringing resources together to create very innovative product technologies, and there's another business over there that currently doesn't have that kind of capability, but could, that's a diversification move, I understand. So that's the first point. The second point has to do with the boundaries. And this is new thinking. I'm not settled on this entirely. But I had this feeling that from a strategic point of view, the boundary of the firm is actually not a very interesting question. What really is the question is, how do I assemble the resources that I need in a co-specialized way to generate economic profits? Some of those may be inside the boundary of the firm. Some of those are never going to be inside of that. And so I totally understand why the government is very interested mm-hmm. in understanding how to define the boundary of the firm for tax reasons. I get it. Why the accountants would be interested in that. Predators are interested. I'm not, predators are interested. But from a strategic point of view, whether it's inside or outside the boundary of the firm is always dependent on to what extent are we able to get specialized investments mm-hmm. of the kind necessary to generate economic profits. If we can do that across a firm boundary, then fine. If we can't, then we bring them in, in-house. It's a slightly different story than transaction cost economics, which is not about how do we create rents Mm -hmm. from those boundary decisions. It is more about how do we prevent opportunism from the rents that are created across the boundary. So those are slightly different stories, but I'm working on a paper right now that tries to articulate that a little bit more 
Precisely. I think that's an important direction. And I think increasingly, as we think about platform business models, I mean, they're not new, but their prevalence has made everybody think about them and think seriously about them. And all of a sudden, we can look back and see other businesses and say, hey, wait, those are platforms. If you think about it, yeah, platforms, ecosystems, network industries, all that language is describing the same phenomena that economic profit is no longer held within the boundaries of a, of a particular firm. It can be involved cross-specialized relationships across large numbers of different actors. And so, uh, yeah, that seems to me much more reasonable. It is, in fact, the case if you adopt the notion that a firm has to own all the assets that could be a potential source of economic profits, then the result of that is very low flexibility. Mm-hmm. You're fully committed because the cost of getting rid of all that stuff it can be very high. So it, just maintain multiple relationships Still, still inducing people to make specific investments, stakeholders make specific investments in your company so that you can generate profits that are then shared with those stakeholders. That's as stable as having everyone inside the boundary of the firm, but still is more flexible. Flexibility is pretty important today, particularly I mean, sure. the average life expectancy of a company on the S&P has gone from 60 years down to 12 years. And sometimes when I'm talking to legacy companies, I feel like one of these doctors in a cancer ward, they might bring you in and say, hey, you know, how do we extend our life by a few more years. And every now and then, you know, you you have to tell a patient, listen, maybe you should just spend some time with the grandkids and see the world because why would you want to spend the last year of your life on the chemo drip? Well, even when legacy companies go away and they don't go away all at once typically, but when they go away over time, the resources and capabilities in the company don't go away. They get redistributed across the economy. And people who understand about how to do high quality manufacturing because they worked for many years at a GE plant, and then the plant closes or is sold off, that capability doesn't go away. People learn to reapply it in new ways. Another transaction cost, I want to pretend that these are not trivial. People's lives are interrupted, those kinds of things. But from the overall point of view of the overall economy, it's not a disaster. Well, I mean, there are some non-reversibilities, right? Specific routines that exist within that organization, sure. right? But I was wondering, you know, in evolutionary biology, there's this discussion about, is there a gene that controls the mutation rate? And organizations that have the capability of changing their capabilities, this seems to be increasingly important. And I think in your novel, this comes up. There's an inertia, there's organizational factors which mitigate against companies acquiring new capabilities. It's in some people's self-interest to not see change inside organizations, absolutely. Right. And so how does, a, how does an organization develop the capability of evolving its capabilities, so to speak? Well, if I, if I knew the answer to that question, I wouldn't tell you because I'd just sell it. I, several thoughts come to my mind. One of the projects I'm working on right now is with a former CEO, a friend of mine. We're tackling the question of how do you change an organization's culture? Now, culture is a set of values and beliefs, stories that are told about innovation and creativity, performance, efficiency, management relationships. All those things that make up a culture. And everyone knows, I think that it's been demonstrated conclusively that, that organizational culture can have a huge impact on performance. Some of the ways we've already talked about, gathering people together and, and helping them realize extra value by working together in a particular organizational culture. But suppose you're in a company that has a sucky culture. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just a disaster, it's culture. It may have other advantages that allow it to survive, but its organizational culture is a real disaster. So in order to grow and go to the next level, what do you do? There aren't really good answers to that question. Many years ago, I was contacted by a firm in Silicon Valley uh, and asked if I would be willing to help them change their culture. They had a major competitor that had a very enabling, ennobling culture. 
And they had just finished a six-month study that had shown that their culture was risk-averse, punished risk-taking, and thus they didn't get any innovation. By the way, it took them six months. So anyway, this, this company, they came to me and they said, uh, what we want to do is we want you to hire, and we want to hire you to get rid of our old culture and build a new culture just like our major competitor. And we should do that in six months. I said, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> you know, I don't think it, it works that way. So we've talked to individuals who've actually changed at least some important elements of their culture. And we're trying to understand how they do that. And so this is really about developing a dynamic capability mm-hmm. and how that's done. The thing we're focusing on is changing the stories that are told inside the organization. And to do that by engaging activities that are designed to challenge the status quo and become sort of a story within the firm. I'll also grant sometimes the best thing to do is let a firm die because the change might be so hard that it is not practical. When I remember back to when I was first introduced to this concept of kind of core competencies, Coca-Cola was, I think it was owned by a movie studio. It's it like all this crazy stuff happening. And that's kind of led to the breakups. It led to a lot of the LBOs and, and uh, stuff sure. like that. And it was really all about these kind of pure plays. But I think we're, we're seeing a whole new generation you might think of as like new conglomerates because, because remember the argument back in those days was, Hey, if you're good at management, you're good at management, right? If your core competency is to evaluate projects, then you can evaluate projects. And then that got killed. But now we're, we, we see it reborn because if you look at Amazon, I mean, is there really anything that Amazon can't do, right? I mean, there, there, it seems to me like they actually are a realization of this idea that you can have a core competency in the area of just running a company and running a process. So I think their core competency is, is distribution. And then they have a second business called AWS that actually funds their investment in distribution. And whether that's the right way to fund the distribution business, I don't know. That's a diff- also a different question. But the venture capital firms, private equity firms, first of all, they usually are not trying to realize operational economies in scope, right? Like a common R&D facility across the businesses they own or a common sales force. Those operational details are often quite difficult to do. They really specialize in evaluating certain kinds of projects in certain kinds of firms. Let me give you an example. I had a client that I worked with, a fabulous company, a small cap, mid cap company, and a very mature marketplace. They had 80% of the market, well, 70 to 80% of the market in the United States, just thrown off cash, just thrown off cash. And so the first thing we did, of course, is we uh, evaluated their dividend policy and their stock buyback policy and made the adjustments so that it was, that they were right where they should be with respect to those two activities. And it was just still thrown off cash, positive cash flow. And so we then took them and we structured them. It took two or three years, but we structured them into a multi-divisional structure that became a platform for approvative uh, for acquisitions, but of a very specific kind in a very special industry and where there, there were clear capability advantages. And they did three of those acquisitions and they all worked. They all generated even more cash. And I said, what's the end of this? And I, the end of it is, you're going to get acquired by a private equity company who's going to take all that cash and use it. And that's the way you're going to realize the full value. Now, the private equity company, that happened. The private equity company has done some additional acquisitions. They have not realized the full synergies, but they put really good controls in place. That capability, it seems to me, they're betting on that capability to generate the economic value from the acquisition. We'll see if this happens in this case, in the particular case, but that is the general story about what a venture capital firm can bring to the table 
So at the end of your novel, you wax philosophical a little bit and you've helped educate a couple of generations of business leaders. And, and I think that you have some interesting insight into what makes for a good strategic thinker. You have one character that's a PhD in chemistry, right, in, in your book, and then you have this other person who I think feels a little insecure about his lack of expertise. But at the end of the day, right, there there is an, an, an expertise that you can acquire in thinking and in asking questions and manipulating frameworks and, and matching it and mixing the inductive and the deductive. Could you just talk a little bit about like what is it that you need to have in order to see the big picture and, and drill in when sure. you need to? So for me, when I think about leadership and strategic leadership in particular, you have to know the technical stuff. You have to know the models. That's the only source of competitive parity. The things that are that distinguish the, the companies that I've worked in that seem to be unusually good are much softer, much softer skills like humility, willingness to learn. I gave a talk on this at a recent academic meeting, and I think some people thought I was crazy. The title of my talk was Love in Corporations. And this is based on my experience of companies who are trying to address really tough problems, company survival problems. And the difference between firms that are able to make that work and firms that are not able to make those changes is that the people who work for the CEO in a successful firm, they believe that he loves them in the sense of that he cares for their well-being as much as he cares for his own well-being. How do I create that kind of leader? That's a hard problem. There's no algorithm for creating that. But I do know, from the selecting CEO point of view, I need decisiveness. I need the ability to integrate lots of information. I need the ability to see the big picture to find a broader, more general purpose in the organization. That sounds to me like a source of competitive advantage. And so if I was to give advice to people about their careers, I say your first job, your first two jobs, it's not about the money, although you need to get paid. It's about putting yourself in a position where you can observe someone like that and learn from their mentorship so that someday when the time comes, not just when you're CEO, but even at middle management level, you can provide that same kind of thoughtful and powerful support. When I look back in 1991 and, and they, they had to tack on this course called business policy and, and it was a new thing, maybe we'll see a course called love and it will be tacked on to the core. <laughs> Good thing. Uh, an interesting idea. It's been great talking to you, Jay. I appreciate you could take the time. Yeah, I've enjoyed it enormously. So everybody remember, if you want a really great intro to strategy, there's a bunch of books out there. And if you really are looking for something to read on that plane, definitely grab the, the book, What You Didn't Learn in Business School, which I thought was fantastic. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.